You're listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It's not just radio, it's community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Good morning and welcome to Speaking of the Arts on KOPN, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show. My name is Diana Moxham. It is a rare artist who is able to dedicate their time exclusively to the creation of art, as more often they are also juggling full-time jobs. So the opportunity to have a residency within a particular organisation gives an artist the time and space to push the boundaries of their creative expression. The Artist in Residence programme at Access Arts offers that opportunity. And later in the show, I'll be chatting with Shauna Johnson, Access Arts Executive Director, and one of their current resident artists, Marisa Calado, about a new show opening at the Mont Mini Gallery this weekend. But first, we're going to visit a large, tastefully renovated home in Sneedon's Landing, just outside of New York City, and the home of Charlie and Myra Brock, who are celebrating their 10th wedding anniversary by throwing a party for eight of their best friends. However, what should be a delightfully elegant evening is instead the vehicle for the hilarious Neil Simon Farce Rumours, which opens at Maplewood Barn next week. And here to reveal some of its secrets are director Christopher Gould and actors Nora Dietzel and Stephen Easterling. Welcome to the show, everybody. Thank you, Diana. Thank Thanks for having us. Christopher, this is quite a cast you have collected for the show. Are comedies generally easier to cast than dramas? You know, it's a, it's, a, it's a very good question. I'm not sure I have a really good answer for that. This is really my first comedy. I have directed mostly dramas and dramedies, I suppose, in the past. <laughs> comedy requires a certain sense of timing, a certain sense of humor, and all the rest. I, I wouldn't say that it's necessarily easier or harder one way or the other. It's just kind of in a different direction. I don't have a sense of how many people audition for shows in Columbia. For something like this, how many people are showing up and what are you looking for? We had about between 12 and 16 people actually audition. Um, Generally, what I'm looking for is, as I say, sort of a sense of the humor, a sense of timing, but I'm also looking for people who will take direction. So when I have auditions, I will often ask the actors to make a different choice or to try something different, and that is sort of a little test to see if they can actually take direction or if they've got their sights set on doing it a certain way and they're not really interested in hearing anything else. Did you have them read something from this show or could they choose any piece to present? No, we actually had sides from the show. So we had excerpts. Um, There's really only one serious monologue for the character of Lenny, um, who is not with us today, but I had actors read excerpts from his monologue. I had them read dialogue scenes. I had several. um, I had a couple of, you know, group scenes where I basically had have all eight or all ten people standing up there reading their parts. And do people, when they come for an audition, are they thinking about specific roles, or is it just read the side, the excerpt, and then you decide who's going to have what role, or or do they come with an idea of which role they want? That depends on the actor. Some actors really are only interested in specific roles, and there's a place on the audition form where they can indicate that. There's also a place where they can indicate that they're not interested in being cast if they can't be cast in their specific role. Um, There are actors, I mean, because this is community theater and people are juggling full-time jobs and all the rest, there are some folks who just simply don't want to make the time commitment unless they have a really good, meaty role. I was fortunate in this case that all the actors who auditioned they had some had specific roles in mind, but all were willing to be cast in whatever way that I was able to cast them. 
So the play opens as people start to arrive for the anniversary dinner of the deputy mayor of New York, Charlie Brock, and his wife, Myra. But it is apparent from line one, scene one, that much is amiss. So, Christopher, run through the opening scenes without giving anything away and set the play up for us. Well, as you said, Charlie and Myra Brock are celebrating their 10th wedding anniversary. Charlie is the deputy mayor of New York City, and they're having a gala event for all of their friends, except that Charlie is currently upstairs, passed out, unconscious in his his bedroom with a bullet wound in his earlobe. Um, his wife Myra is nowhere to be found. The servants are gone. All the food is laid out, but they haven't started. It hasn't been cooked, and it's now up to the guests to figure out what's going on and at the same time try to protect themselves and Charlie from any ensuing scandal. It's a great setup for a, you know a, a fast. And we meet four couples. We meet Ken and Chris Gorman, who are both lawyers. We meet Lenny and Claire Gantz. He's a wealthy accountant, and his wife likes to keep up appearances. Ernie Cusack is an extremely uxorious, a wife-loving psychiatrist, and his accident-prone cooking show host wife, Cookie. And Glenn and Cassie Cooper, played by Stephen and Nora, who are here with us today. Let me ask you this. Does anyone else see Basil Fawlty in Lenny Gantz? <laughs> yes. A little bit, yes, absolutely. <laughs> When I was reading his lines, I kept thinking, what does this remind me of? And it really reminds me of Faulty Towers. Yeah. <laughs> well, Lenny is being played by Chris Bowling, who is a very, very active in the community theater here. And he's a very funny actor. And he will. I, I think that when you see the play, you will truly appreciate his work as Lenny. So I think rather than have Nora and Stephen, rather than have you tell me about your characters, you should tell me about each other's characters, as there is little that you agree on in the play. So, Nora, what is Glenn like? Well, he used to be very attentive and catered to my every need, and lately he's been less attentive, so I'm concerned that he might be turning his eye elsewhere. Stephen, surely Glenn wouldn't do that, but what is what is Cassie like? Well, Cassie is a real dear, but Cassie has become insecure as uh, Glenn has pursued his run for the state Senate seat. And Cassie can sometimes blow things out of proportion, and then Glenn has to deal with that. And deal with it he does. Now, surely Glenn wouldn't be having an affair. Surely not. Cassie, why would you think that he would be having an affair? Well, I I watch him with these other women that he talks to at these fundraising events, and uh, I can see how close he gets, and I can see how he is attentive to them in the way that he used to be attentive to me. How long have you been married, do we know? How long do you think you've been married? I think we've probably been married 15 years, that 20 years. Feels about right. Do you think you are each other's first spouses? I think so. Probably. <laughs> Nora, I know you've played dozens and dozens of characters on almost all of Columbia stages, but talk to me about the challenges of playing a character in a farce. Well, this is not actually the first time I've done Rumors. I played a, another part many years ago and enjoyed it so much that I wanted to be a part of this one. So um, I especially enjoy doing comedy and using facial expressions and physical gestures to impart some comedic 
effect uh, even when the lines are fairly straight. And Cassie's lines are fairly straight. Um, they're comedic in that she's way off base, but they are, for her, very serious lines. And so I have to impart my comedy with physical ability. What role did you play in the past out of interest? I played Chris, Chris okay. Gorman. And she has a kind of a much bigger comedic role I suppose yes but Cassie is very funny it's just maybe her lines aren't directly funny but she's kind of a foil for the comedy that she sets a lot of things up for other people right Nora brings a lot to the role as well and sometimes it's not always scripted Um, (laughs) she's very good with her facial expressions uh, reacting to what things that other people say but then last night we had a situation where she is uh, she's flirting with one of the other party guests and uh, Nora sort of is lying sort of across the back of the couch flirting with the other with the other character and she kind of slipped and fell into the couch and then had to extricate herself from the couch I liked it so much I said well you can do that every night if you want but don't don't make it so that you get stuck in the couch you know you have such fantastic facial expressions when i've seen you on stage does that bleed over into your regular job and life like do you sometimes feel like you have to keep a poker face but you're you're better at doing faces than keeping a poker face well it, it certainly is helpful when i can be mindful about Um, showing my expression showing my emotions and my enthusiasm for something on my face because it's not something that when you're totally relaxed that you normally do so if I can remind myself to do that and just be mindful of what my emotions are what I'm trying to impart to someone and use my face to do that um, it is very helpful and it's been helpful in my work it's more when you're not supposed to impart an expression (laughs) (laughs) right it's also good at that at at masking a certain uh, emotion that maybe isn't uh, what you want to impart Stephen as an actor do you tend towards characters in whom you can see a little of yourself or do you like to go for polar opposites And, and what do you bond with in Glenn's character uh, well, that uh, it takes me back to uh, when I was working in California and I went to my uh, agent who was always sending me out to the good guy roles. And I'd always see the bad guys that got these great luscious parts, you know. And so I went to my agent and I said, why won't you send me out on those roles of the rough and tough guys? And she says, go look in the mirror and then answer that question. And I, and I kind of got that, that um, I probably don't have those qualities within my character makeup. So I do gravitate to the characters that express a more gentleness to them if they will. And I like the Glenn character in this particular play because he, he has that kind of that both sides to him. He is this kind of this phony politician on one side, but there is a genuineness to him as well. And this play allows kind of a dual characters to come out in almost every character, Mm -hmm. which is what makes it really kind of interesting. It's almost a play within a play within a play. Did you, when you went for the audition, did you want this part? Uh, No, actually, uh, I spotted this audition for this play. I didn't really remember the play at the time, but I knew that this was going to be a funny play. And I just felt like I really need some funny in my life right now. And I think everybody needs some funny in their life right now. So I went to the auditions 
And uh, Christopher puts on a great audition. It's fun to audition right from the very beginning. It's a good time. And I just felt that. I felt very, very blessed to be cast in this play. And I love the fact that I have this particular role. Nora, were you going for Glenn, or did you think you might reprise your earlier role of Chris? I really had no preference. I just wanted to be a part of the show. So, um, you know, there's a, you can never recreate uh, with a new group of people what you had in a role. So um, it didn't have special preference for me to play the, the same role again. Christopher, when Nora and Stephen turned up, did you immediately know who they were going to be, or, or was it really depending on how the other cast read? It was very much dependent upon the other cast. Actually, Nora, we Nora was out of town during the week of the audition, so that we set up a special audition for her. And I have worked with Nora a number of times in the past, and I knew that I would love to cast her if I was able to. But it really... A lot of times, even if you think you have in mind who you might want to cast in certain roles, it always depends on who actually shows up because the person you want might not actually show up or the person that you want might not work with the other people that are present in the cast. And I, this cast actually went through a couple of configurations before it was set. And so um, I knew that I wanted to cast Nora. I had no idea how I was going to cast Nora. And it just it worked out nicely that I was able to cast her as Cassie. Do the configurations happen once you start doing the readings or kind of before you've started that? When are you making those decisions? Well, I mean, I think every director is, has sort of got their dream roles, their dream cast for shows beforehand. But the, the Barn Theater does not precast shows at all. Um, and so it, I really can't make those kind of decisions until the auditions have happened. I have to see who shows up. I have to see who reads well together. A lot of times who looks well together. Or if there's enough of a contrast between two actors, if you have really tall and really short, then the fact that they're so opposite makes them work together really well as much as some two people that are similar in height or similar in coloring. So those decisions start to get made after the first night of auditions. There's usually two nights of auditions, and then second night as well, let's see who shows up, and let's see who blows the first people out of the water. <laughs> so we're going to do something new this week. We're going to do a read a little scene from the play, which I'm very excited about. So Glenn and Cassie, to set it up, are the last couple to arrive at this ill-fated dinner party, and we meet them about two-thirds of the way through the first scene. And like all good fast arrivals, it is clear from the outset that all is not well between Glenn and Cassie. So let's pick it up from where they are left alone in the living room after meeting Ernie, who they incorrectly assume is the butler. Do I look all right? Yes, fine. I feel so frumpy. God, no, you look beautiful. My hair isn't right, is it? I saw you looking at it in the car. No, I wasn't. What were you looking at then? The road, I suppose. I can always tell when you hate what I'm wearing. I love that dress. I always have. <laughs> this is the first time I've worn it. I always admired your taste, is what I meant. It's so hard to please you sometimes. What did I say? It's what you don't say that really drives me crazy. What I don't say? How can it drive you crazy if I don't say it? I don't know. It's the looks that you give me. I wasn't giving you any looks. You look at me all the time. Well, because you're always asking me to look at you. Well, it would be nice if I didn't have to ask, wouldn't it? It would be nice if you didn't need me to look. Which would make it unnecessary to ask. I can't ever get any support from you. You've got all the time in the world for everything and everyone else. But I have to draw blood to get your attention when I walk in the room. We walked in the room together. 
It's already done. Oh, Cassie, please don't start. We're 45 minutes late as it is. I don't want to ruin this night for Charlie and Myra. We're 45 minutes late because you scowled at every dress I tried on. Oh, I didn't scowl. I smiled. You always think my smile looks like a scowl. You think my grin looks like a frown. You think my frown looks like a yawn. Don't sneer at me. It wasn't a sneer. It was a peeve. God, this conversation is so banal. I can't believe any of the things I'm saying. We sound like some freaking TV couple. Oh, now we're going to get into language, right? No, Mr. Perfect, I will not get into any language. I don't want to risk a frown, a scowl, a yawn, a peeve, or a sneer. God forbid I show a human imperfection. I'd wake up with the divorce papers in my hand. What is this thing lately with divorce? Where does that come from? I don't look at you sometimes because I'm afraid you're thinking you don't like the way I'm looking at you. I don't know what you want from me, Glenn. I really don't. I don't want anything from you. I mean, I would like it to be the way we were before we got to be the way we are. A great place to end. Oh, that was awesome. Round of applause. That was a great, a great scene to choose. Christopher, the director, Gene Sachs, who directed the original play on Broadway, said keeping the ball in the air for a full-length farce is Herculean. One has to be alert 120 seconds a minute because every moment counts. Every tiny second is significant. You can't afford to have a wasted lift of an eyebrow. How do you successfully direct a farce? Oh, my goodness. Um, <laughs> I don't know if I have successfully directed a farce, to be perfectly honest. I think you'll have to come out and see it and let me know if I was successful. <laughs> the process has been very... I, I, frankly, I agree with the quote. You have to sort of pay attention. You have to be very present and very engaged all the time. The actors, when they're doing their roles, they have to be very aware of what they're doing, what they're saying, how they're saying it to it, their facial expressions and all the rest. As a director, you have to sort of watch everybody all the time, which is, as, as, as the quote said, a Herculean task. <laughs> it has definitely been one of the more challenging plays that I've directed because I really, I, I tend to direct plays that are a little smaller, they're a little more dramatic where you know two characters are inter interacting with each other in a very intense way and in this case i've got eight ten characters that are interacting all with each other i've got people going in and out of doors i've got you know all these plates in the air going on at the same time it has definitely been a challenge um the only way that i've been able to do it is to just sort of stay on and stay engaged and pay attention to everything all the time and that must be true of the actors too there is so much dialogue in the play it's a constant verbal barrage with all the actors constantly butting in, reappearing, interrupting. So not only does everyone have a lot of lines to remember, but also a ton of places where they suddenly interject. So there must be occasions <laughs> when somebody just blanks on their line or the timing of their line. And then what do you do then? I mean, how, how often does that happen, Nora? <laughs> it happens, but uh, I mean, it happens in every show. And we just try to help each other out and say something that will jog their memory or pick it up a little later and and just keep it going because Christopher's done a really good job at pointing out where we have extra space where we need to remove that space and keep everything just really chop chopping along and so as long as we keep moving I don't think anyone would be aware if we dropped a line here and there um, we just need to be able to keep each other going we have been very lucky in that 
every person who's been involved in this show has been very on, very engaged, and there's a lot of love in the cast. As I told them the other night, you know, this will happen. You will drop a line. You will get lost. These things happen. But fortunately, you have nine other people on the stage who want to help you, who want to pull you out of a tailspin. That's already happened a few times in rehearsal where people just get lost. I act as well, and so sometimes you just completely forget your line. You just go blank. And it's so nice to have other engaged professional actors, not professionals necessarily, but professional acting actors, to help pull you out or prompt you or give you a hint or do something to prevent those long pauses on the stage. Stephen, are you exhausted at the end of an evening? Because it's, it's just constant. Well, it, it is. You know, one of the things that I think is really neat about how the show has come together, and, and Christopher uh, touched on it right there, everybody on the stage owns the show, and you can feel that. You know, you don't feel like you're just a part of the show. You're integrated with everyone else from the beginning to the end. And you're right. It can be exhausting by the end of the night, you know, because you have been on for a couple of hours. One of the things that I find that's been really wonderful working with Christopher as a director is that he has this great sensitivity to see this, these intricacies that, a, that an actor might be bringing to a character. And he can see that because he is an actor himself and he can feed back to you whether or not that's working or not working or how to modify it to be the best you know and, and that's called fine tuning and when you're fine tuning like that it means you take a beautiful script like this and you really maximize all of the humor that's found in the spaces and the timing and so anyway, I see that in this play and in this cast. Does it take longer to rehearse for a physical comedy like this than a drama? Again, that kind of depends on the show. We we are rehearsing three hours a night. In the past, when I've done dramas, it's usually been more like two, two and a half. But again, there is so much going on. There's so many things to consider props and set and all of the entrances and exits and the humor and the timing that um, I'm finding that three hours is almost not enough, but I also don't want to completely exhaust myself and the actors. I'm sure when you're doing early read-throughs, everyone's laughing and slowly over time, you get so used to each other's lines that it's not really funny any longer after the hundredth time. So at this point, you must be so ready to perform in front of an audience and hear a response to the comedy but no as everyone always says no two audiences are created equally and so you you know one night people might laugh loudly another night people might just laugh inside their heads <laughs> so how does it feel to perform to an audience of people who don't laugh out loud that's hard it's it's much more challenging when you don't feel the energy of the audience coming back to you um but and christopher has kind of tried to prepare us for responding to laughter because you do have to hold the line for a, a few seconds while the laughter goes otherwise you train the audience not to laugh so as long as we can feel that they're responding that brings out more in us but you have to put a little extra effort in when you don't feel that back from the audience and you don't know which line they're going to laugh at one night they might laugh at one line and it'll fall flat the next night right yes absolutely well i have i'm bringing in a ringer uh next week for the dress rehearsal uh, a friend of mine who is a very loud and distinctive laugher and who always laughs at all the good parts so they'll be there to laugh for the actors so that they have a better 
better sense of, okay, oh, that's right, this is funny. I'd for, I've been doing it so long, I've forgotten it's funny. That would be a great audience audition role, like to uh, audition audience members to come along and laugh at the dress rehearsal. <laughs> that would be great. Um, as an actor, is it easier to get people to laugh or cry? Oh, I think it's equal. I, I think it <laughs> requires the same kind of skill um, either way. And it's unfortunately something that you have or you don't. I think uh, that ability to bring out emotions in people. I think it's easier to get people to laugh than to cry because crying is such an investment that we are as a culture that we're conditioned not to do in front of other people not to do in public whereas people will use laughter as an escape from maybe the emotions that might normally make them cry in private and if you are performing a dramatic role where you're trying to evoke a tearful response from the audience i mean you're not again you're not hearing it as loudly as you're hearing a laugh how do you know it's happening when you're on the stage because you can't really see tears rolling down you can usually cheeks. feel it though you can you can feel when the audience is with you i i can at least i i know when i have them i can sense that and i don't know what it is that i'm picking up but i i can feel when they're with me I remember going to see uh, I went to see Pippin at Stevens College recently, and I went with a friend of mine, and and she she laughed a lot, and she leaned over, and she said, "Oh, she said, I'm doing the mum laugh because her children had both gone through, you know, drama at school." And she said, "You know, mums learn to laugh out loud so that you know their kids can hear, like, oh, I got a good response." So lots as, of as an actor, I've learned to do that when I attend shows too, because I'm not normally a a big outward laugher, and uh, I've had to make myself do that to show my appreciation for what's happening on stage in in my imagination farces always have a lot of doors and people coming in and out and narrowly missing each other as they appear and disappear paint a picture of the set for us oh my goodness yes we have a lot of doors in this set and we do have those simultaneous entrances and exits we have a front door we have a downstairs powder room door we have a swinging door that goes to the kitchen dining room and servants quarters we have a basement door that is never actually opened and then we have an upstairs with two bedroom doors um, one going to charlie's bedroom where the the ever unseen charlie is lying and you know lying with his bloody ear and then we have a guest bedroom door as well so there are lots of times where people will come in one door and go out another door and when they go out another door somebody will come in yet another door and and so it's sort of this constant in and out of doors <laughs> when you're directing such a physical comedy the blocking where the actors are on the stage and how they move around each other must become extra convoluted do you have like a storyboard for each scene or how do you plan everyone's moves this has been the most difficult show that i've ever blocked Normally, I have sort of a map of the, a sketch of the stage, and I actually have those old pewter figures from Dungeons and Dragons, <laughs> and I bring those out, and I resign, I sign a pewter figurine to each actor, and I sort of I map it out beforehand. I wasn't able to do that with this show. It's such a complicated show. So I have kind of, I, I, I had kind of an abstract idea. The other challenge is that um, the rehearsal space for Maplewood Barn is at the mall. And so it's a completely different size of space than when we actually get to the barn. So I just kind of focused on, okay, I know when people, I know when and where people need to enter and exit. And we're just going to figure the rest of it out when we actually get to the barn stage and have a set. It was a real challenge. And it's been, and it's been sort of a constant fine-tuning, as Steve 
even said, constantly fine-tuning the blocking and to the point where we're still making little blocking changes here and there as we need them. We are out of time, unfortunately, but uh, give us the whens and where details, Christopher. Okay. The play, Rumors, Neil Simon's Rumors, at Maplewood Barn Theatre. We open next Thursday, August 22nd. We run for three weekends, August 22nd through 25th, August 29th through September 1st, and September 5th through 8th. Tickets are $10 for adults, $3 for children under 10, although frankly I don't recommend bringing the children under under 10. This is definitely not a show that is geared toward the little ones. Bit PG. A bit PG, a bit PG-13. <laughs> Thank you so much to Christopher Gould, Nora Dietzel, and Stephen Easterling. The Neil Simon Fast Rumors opens at Maplewood Barn next Thursday and runs for three weekends. You can buy tickets online at maplewoodbarn.com or at the Barn's box office, which opens an hour prior to showtime. Bring a lawn chair or a blanket and a bottle of wine and sit under the stars and enjoy the play. The show starts at 8 p.m. every evening. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Diane. Thank you. You're listening to Speaking of the Arts on 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia. And after a short break, I'll be chatting to Shauna Johnson, the Executive Director of Access Arts and ceramic artist Marisa Calado about a new art show which opens at the Mont Mini Gallery tomorrow. Stay close to your radios. Welcome back to Speaking of the Arts. Making art takes time. Not only the time to think up, map out and create a work of art that people will see, but the trial and error time, the attempts that fail, the concepts that are explored en route to a creative decision, the learning time, then double, triple or quadruple that each time an artist decides to explore a new artistic avenue. It's basically starting from scratch and there are few artists for whom art making is a full-time pursuit. Residency programs are a way for artists to dive into their creative process to be given time and space to research and trial not only to create new work but to go deeper into existing practices and to push the boundaries of what they thought was creatively possible the artist in residence program at access arts exists to assist professional artists with their personal artistic goals while simultaneously providing them with the experience of teaching a diverse population of students tomorrow a new show has its official opening reception at the Mont mini gallery at the Boone History and Culture Centre featuring the work of two artists who are currently resident artists at Access Arts and here to tell us more about the programme and the art show is Access Arts Executive Director Shauna Johnson and one of the featured artists Potter Marisa Calado. Welcome to the show Shauna and Marisa. Thanks for having us. So although the official opening reception is tomorrow the work has been on display for a couple of weeks already so Marisa mm-hmm. what kind of feedback have you had already? Mostly people think it looks good, I guess. Um, (laughs) I think it looks nice. Yeah, the work looks great. My work next to Pat's work looks really good. He's a painter, and so he's got the wall space, and I've got pedestals and things. So it's a nice... um, And the gallery is a nice space, too, so it flows really well as as you go around. So... Yeah, pretty exciting. It's a pretty sizable gallery, yeah. the Mont Mini Gallery, with a lot of wall and floor space to fill. So when this opportunity was presented to you, did that amount of space feel wildly liberating or slightly <laughs> intimidating? It was a little scary, for sure. But I was like, oh, you know, if, if, if I can... I got all these pots that I've been making anyway, so I guess, you know, we'll just make a few more and see what happens. <laughs> sure, I think this is the second, is that right, exhibit that Access Arts has done in tandem with the Mont Mini Gallery? Uh, I think it's the third, third, yeah. How did this relationship come about? Well, 
I guess about uh, two or three years ago, we did a community art project where we had, uh, we invited different people, different groups from the community to paint pieces of a huge mural. It was the year of the eclipse. And so we were, you know, having this community art project and it was like, okay, well, where are we going to put that? (laughs) Because it was (laughs) ginormous. Um, And so we reached out to the Mont Mini and it just so happened that they had space. And that was such a success that the last couple of years we've, we've done something else. Because Access Arts, I mean, you have a campus of three buildings, but I mean, Mm -hmm. really they're all working spaces. There's not Mm -hmm. a a show space there, right? Uh, We do have one room that we can use as a gallery. We've actually renovated it. It looks really nice now, but most of the time we still use it as a classroom. So Marissa, tell us about your work. Well, I'm about a year out of school now, and when I was in school, I was doing mostly sculptural stuff, hand-built animals and figures and things like that. And then once I graduated, I was kind of like, well, I kind of want to get back into pots, because that's really what drew me to ceramics in the first place. And I was like, I'm going to do a residency, because it's the only way that I'm going to get studio space outside of school. And ever since I've been here, I... I've been doing um, both wheel-thrown and hand-built pots, and a lot of my... The work in the show is mostly hand-built pots, so slab building, coil building, pinch pots. And I'm really interested in, in texture and the marks that my hands make on the pots, as well as the um i I use a lot of underglaze which is basically a ceramic paint that's very true to color unlike regular glazing and uh i'll patterns with uh, like inspired by things like wallpaper and fabric i like to kind of think about things that make me feel at home or comfortable and put those into my pots that are sometimes not the most comfortable pots i guess they're not very um rigid and strictly academic I really like having looser forms and more more gestural pots, I guess. In your artist statement, you talk about home and the importance of home, and that's how your work reflects that. So I wondered, what does the idea of home mean to you? Uh, it's kind of a weird thing for me right now because I am from New York, and I moved here for my residency in October, and... It's been a weird, <laughs> weird transition. The The Midwest is a lot different than the East Coast. And, um, and so getting used to the differences out here versus back home and then having to deal with the, the homesickness, you know, missing my mom and, you know, all that kind of stuff, it leaves you feeling a little bit out of place. And so what I like to try and do with my work is make myself, I guess, feel more at home where I am, rather than sitting around going, oh, I wish I was. So are your, thinking of home, Mm -hmm. are your kitchen cupboards, or your mum's kitchen cupboards, full of handmade ceramics? They're uh, not necessarily the pots that we, we would use at home, but my mom, for just for example, still has all of my pots and and little little pinch sculptures and stuff from when I was in kindergarten or whatever you know and so and, and they're all like really gross colors like bright <laughs> red like weird orangey colors and things like that and so I my whole life I've had to look at that stuff and I'm just kind of like yeah that kind of feels <laughs> like that's like the the decoration of home and like you know not that my mom doesn't decorate otherwise but you know with the with the sort of roughness of my current 
work, um, especially the pinch pots and things, it brings me back to that childlike thing. The freedom of yeah, it. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. You also talk about your relationship with color and texture. Mm-hmm. And I wondered, looking around the world, as you move through the world, do you respond to what you see or what you touch? Because it always used to interest me when I ran a gallery, how many people had to physically touch everything, even paintings. Mm-hmm. They couldn't just look with their eyes, that they had to look with their fingers too. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I definitely am a toucher. I, you know, if I'm in a store or something and I see something that I, I think that the fabric looks nice or, or something. I'm, I'm just like, I have to touch this. This needs to be in my hands right now. And, you know, it's it's all kinds of things, whether it's a nice feeling or something that's kind of off-putting. I'm just like, I want to touch that. Uh. Um, <laughs> but I also have always really loved bright, gross colors. Bright lime green is one of my favorite colors. Yellow is my favorite color. So I'm just kind of like, ooh, all these weird garish kind of things coming together. (laughs) And hopefully in a good way. (laughs) Do you want people to touch your art when they look at it? I wouldn't mind. I don't know if the gallery would really like that too much, but I have no problem personally with people, uh, you know, picking up my work and and feeling it and holding it um, and imagining themselves using it in their own homes. Something that is also really interesting to me is just the relationship between the work and the viewer. So, yeah, I mean touch my work but don't tell the gallery I told you you can (laughs) I must admit when I was there yesterday looking at the show there was no one else there I I kind of I saw the sign and then I looked around to see if anybody was there then I picked a piece up (laughs) guilty (laughs) do you think of yourself as a potter or a ceramic artist and and what is the difference between the two oh that's a a good question (laughs) Um, there's sort of a I guess a a traditional distinction that people like to make, uh, especially in, you know, the the quote unquote high art world where, you know, it's like, oh, pottery is just like a craft kind of thing or it's low art. I, because of my sculptural background, I do kind of go back and forth a little bit. I consider myself a ceramic artist rather than just a potter, um, but I don't think about the way that people, I guess, will traditionally make that distinction where it's like, well, I'm not just a potter. I'm a ceramic artist. You know, I don't feel that way. I don't think that I'm I'm any higher art or lower art than somebody who just likes making bowls or whatever, you know? Yeah, I'd seen you in an artist statement or your description, you were described as a potter. Mm. And and I always describe people as ceramic artists. Yeah. And so I wasn't <laughs> sure. Shauna, do you have a sense of what if people prefer one or the other? Do people get upset if you call them one and they say, well, actually, no, I'm a potter? I've never really encountered that. It is interesting how people tend to refer to themselves as one or the other. You know, someone who focuses strictly on functional pottery probably tends to refer themselves as a potter more but yeah like marissa said i don't think people so much these days look at it as better or worse it's it's just a different terminology so marissa you were at the university of hartford in connecticut and now you're in missouri how did you find (laughs) out about this residency basically once i graduated i was like well i can either (laughs) try and find a job and see if that works out or i can apply for residencies and (laughs) i was basically i was a little bit late to the residency game because most of the applications are you know in the winter or whatever or, or the early spring and then it goes the next fall you start but i had to do some 
extra stuffed over the summer. But I was like, well, we're going to look and see application uh, residencies that have rolling application deadlines and all this other stuff. And, you know, I applied to a few and, and Access Arts stood out to me because it's a really teaching heavy residency. And that's really what I wanted. I really love teaching. And I, I TA'd a little bit in school and it was my favorite thing second only to actually making the work. <laughs> but rather than going for a residency that would have me wholly doing studio maintenance or whatever like that, I'd much rather do the actual teaching and be hands-on with students. That was a really big draw for me. Shona, Access mm-hmm. Arts offers both live-in and non-live-in residences with contracts mm-hmm. lasting between three months and up to one year. So tell mm-hmm. us a little bit more about the contract that exists between the residents and Access Arts. Mm-hmm. Well, the contract came out of our just our philosophy with the program that you know we really view it as a relationship. You know, we're helping them and they're helping us. And we want to maximize both of those things. And so the contract just basically, you know, lays out our expectations of what we would like our residents to do. Like Marissa mentioned, it is very teaching heavy. Um, So it breaks down the different roles and responsibilities. And then it also builds in our commitment to them to help support their artistic goals that in addition to them teaching and, and helping our students, what can we do for them? And so they all have their own artistic goals that we want to try to support and, and do whatever we can to further. The contract is just kind of a formal process for doing that and helping both sides think through what those goals are and, and make sure everyone's on the same page. And how many applications do you get in a year? Well, since we started doing this more formal process, um, well, I think this year we've gotten probably 20. Some of them are projects that we just really can't accommodate, you know, uh, film sort of things or, you know, things that our, our studios just aren't equipped for. But primarily we do get clay and two-dimensional applicants. And what are you, what are you looking for in the applications? Well, I always look at, you know, can we support them? What are their artistic goals? Do we have the space and the equipment that will help them meet those goals? But then beyond that, I look at what they can bring into our classroom. Are they working with techniques or materials that our students would find interesting? And are they significantly different than what we already offer? Uh, just to kind of spice up things with the the classes. And then obviously, you know, there's a there's a personality fit and, you know, are you a hard worker and all those <laughs> professional types of things. But yeah, primarily we look at can we meet their needs and are they going to bring something to our classes. So what stood out about Marissa's application that mm-hmm. made you choose her and <laughs> not the 19 others? <laughs> she, like she said, was working primarily in sculpture and we had had several instructors and residents who were primarily wheel throwing artists and so I was really intrigued about having a an artist who works primarily with hand building because we do offer hand building classes and I really wanted to kind of support that philosophy that they are you know equally 
creative and important as media. So I I was intrigued by that at first, and then obviously through the interview process, uh, it seemed like it would be a good fit. So I'm guessing, Marissa, that as you have a whole show for your work, it probably means that your time as one of the resident artists is coming to a close. Yeah, all of coming up in October, yeah. How do you feel this time has changed or enhanced your work? What are you taking away from this? Well, I'm definitely a lot better at throwing now uh, on the wheel because <laughs> I've been teaching <laughs> throwing classes and it's like, oh, um, but so that's that's been nice having that as another option. Um, but I've also been uh, exploring different different techniques, you know, uh, things with like, you know, the underglazing. I wasn't really doing much of in school, things like slip transfers and using molds to make like just a simple bowl mold to make like a vase after, you know, putting parts together and things. So, you know, I, I have on my own kind of explored just all kinds of little different things that I've brought into the work. And it's been, it's been fun. What do you think your next body of work will be? Like oh, what has, <laughs> what has changed about your approach to art making from this time? Have you had time to think about another body of work yeah I don't I don't know what's I kind of just <laughs> I kind of just go with what I'm feeling and I I, I don't know <laughs> I'm not much of a planner <laughs> so I don't have a solid set for you know idea for like this is what I'm going to do next but we are working on um, getting a wood firing going so I've been working on some pots for that couple slab built things mostly wheel thrown but we'll see who knows maybe i'll throw in some little sculptures or something we're gonna convert we're gonna convert her to a wood fire artist she doesn't know it yet okay (laughs) sure thing do you go back out east at the end of this i'm probably gonna stick around here for a little bit partially because cost of living (laughs) and you know i mean it's it's nice here i like columbia um People are nicer. (laughs) It's a little more laid back. Yeah, for sure. There are two artists in the current show. Shauna, tell us about Patrick Owen's work, the painter, whose work sits alongside Maurice's. Well, Pat is a a native Colombian. Uh, He grew up here, so it was a little different having someone local in our program as opposed to someone like Marissa who came from far, far away. But, you know, what I love about Pat's work, his approach as an artist is really focused on the process of making and the discipline of making. He is probably the most disciplined artist I've ever met. Uh, he's he's a morning person. He, you know, he's in the studio at like 6.30 every morning yeah, working. Like 4 a.m. or um, something. And- <laughs> yeah, and he he's just one of these guys that he sets a goal and he's very determined about what it takes to make it, so to speak. And so he's committed to that. And so his his work itself, I think, really reflects that. You know, the both the the uh, media that he chooses. The the work in this show is is all painting, but he also does a lot of drawing and uh, different techniques. But they all are very discipline focused. Like you can see the the process of the making in all of his work. Um, and even the the subject matter, you know, like in this show, there's a lot of work with sports themed subject matter. And he kind of draws that parallel about as an athlete, you have to be disciplined and committed to that practice of doing. And as an artist, it's the same thing. You have to you have to be in the studio every day. You have to practice your craft. 
And so I think his work just really exemplifies that. He talks about in his artist statement how the sedentary lifestyle, idle pursuits and passive consumption are behavioural habits that pervade the current cultural landscape. This series of work responds to these habits through the focus of sports imagery and physical activity. Mm-hmm. And I think it's kind of interesting. There's images of football and basketball and things that you would maybe attach a more masculine component to but his mm-hmm. color palette yeah. is very pastel and very right. much mm-hmm. more kind of on what you would traditionally consider a feminine side and i think that's a great juxtaposition they're exactly. very compelling mm-hmm. they kind of pull you towards them the colors they're much more muted yeah. whereas marissa you're going for very bright colors yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they stand in interesting contrast mm-hmm. to each other the two bodies of work yeah and i think i'm glad you brought that up about the color palette with pat's work because you know, I think he really wants people to think about and question their own suppositions, like what they assume about sports. Like we're so inundated with different pictures and, you know, a certain culture around sports. And he's kind of flipped that and say, you know, making people think about it in a different way. It's a very masculine culture. Mm -hmm. And as the women's, the U.S. women's soccer team will attest to, there are many very successful female athletes, Mm -hmm. but they don't Mm -hmm. get as much attention or money as their male counterparts. Mm -hmm. And Simone Biles, I don't know if anyone watched gymnastics this weekend, but yeah, she's breaking some records herself. She is. Yeah. So what was it about Patrick's work? Was it the discipline, the process? Is that what drew you in when you were as a committee looking at who you were going to take on? Yeah, I mean, he, the discipline was definitely a factor. He just has a huge range of technical skill. We were really looking for a 2D artist who could teach classes for us, who would, you know, help our students kind of overcome that intimidation, you know, when you're facing a, a blank white page, of, you know, and I've never drawn before, how do I, how do I approach this? Pat has a great way of teaching, you know, getting his students through that intimidation and, and helping them focus on the skill and enjoy the process and not, you know, not be so scared. So you said, Marissa, this is a rolling application yeah. for Access Arts uh, residency. So are you, does Pat also finish in October and have you got the next two people already signed up <laughs> to come in? Yeah, well, we I am reviewing applications right now. Pat and Marissa both actually finished at the end of October, early November. And then after that, uh, later in November, I have one artist who's coming. She's a ceramic artist also from New York. She's only going to be with us for three months, but she's primarily focused on community art projects. So we're going to be working with her. And then I'm interviewing. I've I've offered a second position to another artist. I don't know if he'll accept or not, but he is a a ceramic artist from California who's doing a lot of work with Raku and different atmospheric firings. So you're already lined up. So you can you can leave your little note about what is weird about the Midwest for the next <laughs> yeah. New Yorker who exactly. comes in. Yeah. <laughs> Shauna, I would like to have you back again in October. I know you have a big event coming up. You have your celebrity coming up. Yeah. Celebrity. <laughs> yeah, get that R in there. <laughs> on October the 24th. So we'll talk later in the year about Definitely. that. Yeah. My guests today have been Shauna Johnson, the Executive Director of Access Arts and artist Marisa Calado. A new art show featuring Marisa's work together with that of painter Patrick Owen 
has its official reception tomorrow afternoon from three till five at the Mont Mini Gallery at the Boone History and Culture Centre. The opening reception is free to attend and open to all. And Marissa and Patrick's show will be on display at the Mont Mini through September the 1st. Thank you so much, Sean and Marissa. Thanks for having us. You're listening to Speaking of the Arts. And before we hand the airwaves over to Terry Gross and Fresh Air, I have a list of arts events coming up that would like to find their way onto your calendars. At Talking Horse Productions, it's the final weekend for the romantic comedy Dancing Lessons, starring Jason Cavallone and Laura Liebhart. Evening performances start at 7.30, plus there is a 2pm matinee on Sunday, and tickets are $15. And at Capital City Productions in Jefferson City, their production of the Rodgers and Hammerstein musical Cinderella is in its second of three weekends. The show's run is, I believe, sold out, so you'll be looking for returns if you do want to go. Saturday morning, the Boone History and Culture Centre continues their Meet the Author series with poet Cassie Donish, whose poetry volume titled Year of the Femme won the 2018 Iowa Poetry Prize. Cassie's talk will start at 10am and is free to attend. The School of Missouri Contemporary Ballet will hold an open house from 10am till 2pm tomorrow, welcoming dance families for a tour of their studios and a chance to take sample classes in pre-ballet, beginning ballet, intermediate jazz and intermediate slash advanced ballet and there is no cost to attend. Tomorrow afternoon from 3 till 5 the Mont Mini Gallery at the Boone History and Culture Centre has the opening reception for its new show, a collaboration with Access Arts featuring the work of their current resident artists, ceramic artist Marisa Collado, who you heard on the show and painter Patrick Owen. The reception is free and open to all and the exhibit continues through September the 1st. The third annual Fortune Fest is at Rose Park starting at 4pm tomorrow featuring a host of local bands, food trucks and craft vendors and $10 gets you into the party. And tomorrow night, the next in the Lyceum Theatre's season of plays opens in Ararock. Fully Committed is a one-man, 40-character show following a day in the life of an out-of-work actor who mans the reservation line at Manhattan's number one restaurant. There are two shows tomorrow at 2pm and 8pm, plus 2pm matinees on Sunday, as well as next Wednesday and Thursday. And tickets are $40 and the show continues next weekend. Sunday afternoon in Jefferson City, Capital City Arts has an opening reception for its new art show titled To Tell a Story. The reception is from 1 till 4 and the show will be on display through September the 17th. And at Rose Music Hall on Sunday night, you can hear upright bass singer-songwriter from Texas, Scott Mulverhill. That show starts at 7.30. Monday evening at Rose Park, there is a kickoff concert for the Dance for the Cats Sock Hop Tour featuring Comeback Buddy. Tickets are $12 on the door and the event will benefit a variety of cat rescue organisations. The concert starts at 7pm and tickets are available from Lizzie and Rocco's, Boone County Animal Care, as well as from Rose Musical. On Tuesday morning, the Columbia Art League will hold the first of two town hall meetings to find out what the community would like to see and experience at the Columbia Art League. This first session is from 10 till 11 on Tuesday and the second is next Saturday, the 24th of August from 4 till 5. Also at 10am on Tuesday morning, the Museum of Art and Archaeology will have its regular sketching group. Supplies are provided and no previous experience is required. No RSVP needed, you can just show up. And next Tuesday evening, the Movies in the Park continues at Rose Park with the film Jumanji. That starts at 8.30 and entrance is free. Next Wednesday, Parks and Recreation's Family Fun Fest is at Cosmo Park from 6 till 8. This month with the theme Around the World, with dancing, crafts, games and other arts from countries around the globe, plus artists from various cultures sharing aspects of their homeland.
Next Thursday is opening night at Maplewood Barn for the Neil Simon Fast Rumours, starring our two guests from today's show, Nora Dietzel and Stephen Easterling, along with a cast of stellar Columbia players. Nightly shows get underway at 8pm and tickets are $10 and that show will run for three weekends. And finally, next Thursday at Rose Musical, Minneapolis indie rock band Bad Bad Hats are in town. Their show starts at 8pm and you'll need $10 to get through the doors. You have been listening to Speaking of the Arts at 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia with me, Diana Moxon, and my good friend and sound engineer, Mike Hagan. We'll be back next week with more news, views, and interviews on the arts in mid-Missouri. Stay arty, Columbia.